Greetings to the brightest audience in the country, and welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. But today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as we explore the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. Well, Lord willing, we'll finish our study of Philippians in this class. And I'd like to start with a discussion of Philippi generally, because we didn't do that at the beginning of the book. Of course, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses this epistle, this letter, to the believers, the Christians who are in Philippi. And two years ago, in 2006, we went on our Denver Bible Church tour, a Bible tour of Greece. And some of you here in this room were there. And we started our journey in Macedonia, that is in northern Greece, at Kavala. And I just want to give you a quick run-through of what we did there, what we learned about Philippi, before we jump in to conclude this study. Kavala is the seaport where the Apostle Paul first landed in Europe to spread the gospel. Now, 2,000 years ago, the city was called Neapolis which was strategically located on the Via Ignatia, or the Ignatius Way. There was the ancient road to Constantinople. Actually, today it's Istanbul. But the name of that city that Paul landed in Europe at, Neapolis, that has a new name today also, and it's related to its historical use as a base for armies. It's called Kavala. Kavala, the Greek word that gave us our word cavalry for our military horsemen. Well, from Kavala, Paul walked, now we rode, but Paul walked the 10 miles on the Via Ignatia to the closest significant city, which is Philippi. And there are things we know about Philippi that certainly help our understanding of this epistle and Paul's early ministry. Well, the Jewish population of this small town was not large enough to support a synagogue, which by tradition required 10 males. So that's why the Jews met on the Sabbath at the river. Remember, Lydia was Paul's first convert, so to speak, there on the Sabbath at the river. Well, why weren't they at the synagogue? Because there was no synagogue. And there was a river that flows from a spring beneath their city's Acropolis, atop a nearby mountain. And so our group went to that same river, to the banks of that river, and we read Luke's account of Paul meeting Lydia, who was a seller of purple. And she became the first known convert to Christianity on European soil, although she was not a European herself. She was from Asia Minor. That is a place we call today Turkey. And she was from the city of Thyatira. Now, I say that she was the first known convert, so to speak, because she was obviously worshiping the God of Abraham. She was a believer. She was there on the Sabbath worshiping, but she didn't know about Jesus Christ. And we find this in the New Testament, this 
occurrence where there are people who are, for example, the disciples of John the Baptist, who then are off and traveling in the world, and they don't know about Jesus Christ. Then they find out about Jesus, and if they're open and sincere in their relationship with God, the God of Abraham, then their hearts are ready to trust in Jesus Christ when they learn that God has fulfilled the prophecies. And that's undoubtedly what Paul did when he went to Philippi. He went through the scripture and he shared with Lydia and anyone who would listen that Jesus was the Christ from the scriptures, that he was born in Bethlehem at the time of the census. He lived a sinless life. He was judged innocent, yet crucified among criminals. And where did that happen to him? Where was he crucified? On Mount Moriah, where Abraham almost offered up Isaac. He was purchased by the high priest as the sacrifice for the nation. And he died as his people were killing their Passover lambs. And he was in the tomb during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he was raised on the very Feast of First Fruits. And so Lydia saw this and she trusted in Jesus Christ. A short walk from where we were on the banks of that river, you could see the temple they built or the ruins of the temple on the nearest high hill, and that's called an Acropolis. Every significant city just had to have a temple on the nearest high hill, their Acropolis. There's a famous one of those in Athens called the Parthenon. But the Acropolis, any city back then could have an Acropolis, nearby high hill, and you plop a temple on top of it, that's your Acropolis. Well, below the Acropolis was their Agora, and that's the town square. And it was a great rectangular pavement with civilian authorities along one side, the military, the commercial enterprises along another side, religious authorities. They were all laid out along the edges of this massive town square, which was the center of Philippi. And we went there, you could go there today, and you see the ruins of this town square, and it is extraordinary. So as Paul ministered in Philippi, there was a fortune teller who followed them around, and she said something that reminds me of Google, the founders of Google, what they're doing this very week. Pops, better known to some of you as Al Sharon, he always says, "Uh, Google, they're big brother. They're big brother. Well, they've launched a global religious initiative, which could send shivers up your spine if you think about it. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. But it reminds me of what this fortune teller said to Paul. Fortune teller said, this man proclaims the way of salvation. But it turns out that's a bad translation. The fortune teller didn't say, this man proclaims the way of salvation. This fortune teller said, this man proclaims a way of salvation. A way of salvation. And that is what really angered Paul. The Greeks had practiced this religious syncretism that was an acceptance of all gods. 
All gods, any gods are welcome. And remember, in Athens, they have the Parthenon and they have Mars Hill. The Areopagus, where they have monuments to all the different gods and then they have to the unknown god. And any god is welcome. So it's a syncretism. And this angered Paul because Jesus Christ is the antithesis of syncretism. He is the only way. Well, the founders of Google have sponsored something called charterforcompassion.org. And this idea came about at a conference, a tech conference in California. Uh, It was the brainchild of a religious scholar named Karen Armstrong. And she thought it would be really wonderful to have a world effort to combine the core principles of every religion and come up with a charter for respect and compassion based on the golden rule where people of all faiths can come together to help draft this statement of principles. And this has the support of Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google, who are both billionaires, and a number of other internet icons, and also Hollywood celebrities like Forrest Whitaker and Cameron Diaz, And so they have now a countdown on their website. There's about 76 hours to go before they're going to launch this thing. And so it certainly could come to nothing. But the idea is similar to what angered Paul 2,000 years ago, this religious syncretism. Let's just take a little of every religion and let's support it all. Let's Let's just everybody have a group hug and sing Kumbaya. You can just picture it. Skinheads hugging Taliban. uh, Jews and jihadists getting along. Well, harmony that is valid ultimately only comes as a result of justice, righteousness, and truth. It doesn't come as a result of lies or deception or blasphemy against God. And so Paul dealt with this and he was angry at this fortune teller. And so he cast the demon out of her and that caused a real hassle because that was a financial loss to her owner, her master. And so her masters were angered and they brought Paul to the Bema seat. And we hear about the Bema seat where Christians will stand before the Bema seat of Christ And that's a Greek term, and I'd like to describe to you what that is because they had one in Philippi, and they have them in all ancient uh, Greek cities of any significance. Uh, In fact, we sat there on the ruins of the Agora, that is the massive town square, and I'm trying to compare this facility we're in right now, Maranatha Christian Center, this school, which is a massive facility, If you put this in the middle of the Agora, it would fit nicely in some corner of the Agora. So it's a huge town square. We sat there and we saw where two great fountains had been dug. And we saw the foundations of two fountains. 
And in the center of them is where the bima seat was. And that's where the civilian authority would sit, occasionally to judge, always to oversee. And so the official sitting on the bima at this time ordered Paul to be sent to the magistrate, that is, to the general. And we get our words strategy and military strategist from the Greek word for general, magistrate. And there it was decided to whip Paul publicly. And so we walked about 50 yards, half a football field, from the Bema seat to the fallen ruins of the military garrison. It's right there. You still see it all, except that it's all fallen down. And the massive stone carved for the peak of their roof. Imagine the military garrison and the roof was made out of stone. Not the safest construction, especially uh, during earthquakes. But the massive stone that was carved for the peak of their roof is still laying there with the military insignia of the sword and the spear engraved into solid stone. And today we know that we could walk in those same uh, places and see, okay, this is where they took Paul to uh, decide what would happen. He was sent to the magistrate, so he just walked 150 feet over that way with some guards. Then we read in the book of Acts, we see how they treated Paul. They decided not to give him a trial since undoubtedly they'd have a hard time coming up with any charges, but to teach him a lesson. And they decided to publicly flog him. And so they brought him back to the Bema seat, and in front of the Bema, there was a short pillar only a few feet high. And we saw this pillar in other cities also. And it had an iron hook set in it, and that's where they would take a prisoner. They took Paul, and they would bear his back and tie his wrists to the hook in the stone pillar, and they whipped him publicly. And that, of course, was done in full view of everyone who happened to be in the forum that day at the town square. And as you go around this huge agora, the town square, you then will come to the place of the imperial cult. And that's where they still, to this day, have the base of the altar where they worshipped Caesar the imperial cult, that was the worshipping of the leader of the Roman Empire as a god. Now, I guess they're doing that already with the Obama administration. Well, maybe not quite yet. Well, maybe yes, I'm not quite sure. I mean, in Iran today, the number one news item, I don't know if you guys have, noticed uh, the headlines and news out of Iran. But their number one news item, they have talk radio in Iran. Somewhat of a sophisticated culture there. Uh, The number one issue people want to talk about is Obama. And there is an infatuation with Obama by the people of Iran. Not that their leaders don't think of us as the great Satan still. Of course they do. But leaders can be converted into gods and worshipped. And I'm not saying that's happening with Obama. But it happened through history with the pharaohs and the emperors in Rome and elsewhere. And at 
this altar for the imperial cult, they would bring Christians. In a short few decades uh, that began with the Apostle Paul, we saw this persecution come into place where they would take Christians to that altar in Philippi and in cities throughout the Roman Empire, and they'd say, take this incense and throw it in the fire on the altar here to Caesar. And the Christians would say, no, I'm not going to do it. And that would be a capital offense. And they would then get the death sentence. And we found out where they would were brought from there. They were, were brought to a the Philippian prison. Remember the story of the Philippian jailer? And we'll skip that story. We've studied that elsewhere. But then from the jail, they would go to the theater. And from where the imperial cult altar was, it's only, uh, what, a few hundred yards, a theater that could seat about a thousand people. And they knew, the archaeologists knew, that somehow they fed the Christians to the lions there. But they weren't sure how they did it until just a year or so before our visit. They found the trap door that was on the stage that they never knew existed. And that was used to spring the lions from cages underneath the stage onto the stage. And... The Christians there were martyred for their faith. And so it was all startling for me, for all of us, to stand in the place where Christians were killed for trusting in Jesus Christ. And we tell our stories of our persecution, how somebody at work found out we're a Christian and they don't like us now. But when we realize what has come before, and so... When we conclude our study of Philippi in this class, uh, we'll go on. In fact, we'll travel back in time to the Old Testament. We'll study the first book written in the Bible, the book of Job. But we went from Philippi to uh, Thessalonica. Thessalonica, that's where we went. But our class, Lord willing, next week, we'll go back to study the book of Job. But now I'd like us to open to Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Philippians 4, verse 7. And since that is the second half of a sentence, let's start reading with verse 6. Paul writes to the Philippians, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Thanksgiving is a week from this Thursday, and it's so neat to live a life with Thanksgiving falling from our lips so readily at every opportunity. We see people we enjoy, fellowship, that we're thankful for in the body of Christ, and we think of God as our creator. We enjoy the blessings of this life. We know that God has forgiven us. It's so neat to be thankful for what God has done for us. And now, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God can guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And that reminds me of another favorite verse that Paul wrote, Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Sometimes we concoct some plan or scheme or, oh, this is what I'm going to do or I'm going to write this letter. I'm going to X, Y, Z. And suddenly we lose the peace that we had within us. And perhaps there's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we think, oh, something is wrong. I, 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 well, I'm going to do this thing. And inside this still small voice is saying, don't do this thing. This thing is wrong. Don't do it. We think, oh, I'm going to do it. And that voice, it could try to get us to wake up and realize our plans are wrong. But if we ignore it, it will get weaker and weaker. But on the other hand, if we ask God to help us to think about the things that are honorable and good and right and to do the things that are right, then we have the peace of God ruling in our hearts. And I think that that's a key way for Christians to apply the scripture to our daily events, to our plans and our actions. Some Christians look for signs and wonders. They want to have God somehow supernaturally confirm that, yes, uh, this is the person for them to marry. And they want maybe the clouds to move in a certain way or God to somehow show them. And I think that that's superstition. But the scriptural method is to take the word of God and use it as a guide for my thoughts and my decisions and my actions and ask the Holy Spirit to search my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Let the peace of God rule in my heart. I think that's the biblical method of staying on the Lord straight and narrow. Verse 8, finally, brethren... And finally, he writes finally because we're getting near the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Wow. To do that, you'd have to be an expert on right and wrong. And isn't that something that's a theme of our ministry here at Denver Bible Church? We've been urging people for years, become experts on right and wrong. Become experts at what is right and what is wrong. So let's read this verse again and consider that to meditate on these things, well, we first have to be able to recognize them. So Paul writes, whatever things are true, He's going to say, meditate on these, consider, dwell upon, study these things. So what is it that we have to meditate on? Whatever things are true, so no truth. Whatever things are noble, so we have to know graciousness. Whatever things are just, we have to become expert in right and wrong. Whatever things are pure, 
we have to know holiness. Whatever things are lovely, we have to know the work of God's hands. Whatever things are of good report, we have to know what an upright reputation is. If there is any virtue, we have to know righteousness. And if there is anything praiseworthy, we have to know godliness. We have, have to be able to identify it. Meditate on these things. So again, become experts at right and wrong. And that's just so encouraging to me because it's really hard to become experts on currency exchange and foreign policy and criminal justice procedures and contract law and zoning codes and on and on and on and on and on. It's hard to become experts on all these things. And believe it or not, these things affect us. In all the discussion of economic bailouts of banks, insurance companies, automakers, and so on, as I listen to conservative talk show hosts, even Christian talk show hosts, which for me becomes more and more difficult as time goes on, it's much easier for me to listen to liberal NPR, National Public Radio, or to watch a program uh, on Nova rather than uh, Hannity and Combs. The one is painful. But there's a phrase I never hear. I never hear any of the Christian talk shows as they work through these hundreds of billions of dollars of bailout plans that have been approved or are yet to be approved. The one phrase I never hear them talking about is right and wrong. I never hear it. I never hear it. The only consideration from the Christian leaders who address these topics on the air nationally, is how will this affect the image of the Republican Party? That's their only consideration. There is no other consideration. Will this look good for the Republican Party? Will this make it easier for Republicans to win in two years, in four years? Or will this help the Democrats? And that's their only motivation for comment. But it's so easy to have a goal of becoming experts on right and wrong. And it's so impossible to make accurate financial predictions and calculations regarding tens of billions of dollars and century-old corporations. How do you make predictions on all that? Okay, so there are all kinds of systemic troubles in the auto industry. So let's give them tens of billions of dollars more than the Republicans have just given them and then that'll fix those problems? How? Who can determine that? Well, the people who got us in this mess are the ones who need this money to get us out of the mess. Well, who can make those calculations? No one with accuracy, but it's really simple to determine right from wrong. Is it right or wrong to take money from young families and give that money to billion-dollar corporations? It's wrong. Is it right or wrong to tax our grandkids for tens of billions of dollars of debt to bail out greedy businessmen and incompetent industrial leaders? Is that right or wrong? It's wrong to get our kids to bear the burden of our economic comforts. It's wrong. So it's so simple. 
But that is not a topic that seems to be popular among the Christian ministries that deal with public policy. And most Christian ministries don't have anything to do with public policy. You know, the the side issues that God is not very concerned about, the, you know, things that are hardly ever mentioned in the Bible, like do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Hey, this is Nicole McBurney interrupting the broadcast. We are unfortunately out of time for today. If you enjoy listening to Theology Thursday, I suggest you go over to kgov.com slash store, that's kgov.com slash store, and subscribe to our monthly Bible studies. Not only will you be getting quality content once a month, but you'll also be helping us stay on the air. We don't have a megachurch to support us. It's just you, me, and the Lord. So anything you can get at the store is a tremendous help to us. Thank you so much for all your support, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow for Real Science Radio with Fred Williams and Doug McBurney. God bless.